With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I also thought it was very interesting that you kind of have this quantified self approach too, where you kind of examine all of your features, you know, <laughs> and, and see how it changes year over year. Like you, you, you write a blog post on your birthday, which by the way, happy birthday from the other day. Thank you. You, you write a blog post each year. Basically, this is what's changed from last year to this year. <laughs> and you're very specific about, I read this many books, this many graphic novels, <laughs> but to this many countries, spent this many hours. And do you view this measurement as a way of measuring your personal freedom? You cannot change what you don't measure. If I send you a packet or a unit of work and you say this is going to be done on Monday, I have to be able to trust that's done on Monday. Otherwise, I have to keep your thing in my head as well as what I'm doing. So, by the way, you know, I, so so just to, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm a little bit of an interrupter, so I sure. apologize in advance. But you talk in a very code-like language. Oh. Like if I send you a a unit of work, <laughs> like. <laughs> If I give you a task, that, that works as well. Sure, sure. Thank you for translating for me. That's uh, 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 I, I'll do it every now and then. Yeah, you, you can translate to English. Yeah. I am so excited for my guest today. First off, um, if you haven't already, get the book, 3 Billion Under 30, about the entire millennial generation where this guy is featured in the book. So that's... Three billion under thirty by my good friend Jared, Jared Kleinert, but Matt Mullenweg, welcome to the podcast. You're the the founder of WordPress, which just looking at the statistics, if you, if, I'm sure everybody knows what WordPress is, but the statistics are actually unbelievable. When I was researching this, and I'm going to let you talk in one second, but I have to really build build you up. Uh, <laughs> something like twenty five percent of the web is powered by WordPress. If you read an article on the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or People Magazine or even the world-famous site jamesaltucher.com, you're reading an, an article that's been published by WordPress and uh, everybody uses it to power their, their websites. It's, it's enormous. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. There's one statistic that really was interesting to me. Uh, you have more WordPress.com itself has more traffic than Amazon.com and yet they have 81,000 employees and you have 500 employees. <laughs> that is true. We try to show some of the difference there. Now, obviously, they probably make more money per probably. visit, <laughs> but it just sort of shows that your your company, which obviously pow, you know fuels WordPress and provides a lot of support and makes all these plugins and so on, and is, and by the way, automatic your company is valued at over a, a billion dollars. So your your company essentially is the dream of the internet of the internet companies. Back when the internet was like quote unquote first commercialized or whatever, everyone thought, oh, I can make a company and it'll scale infinitely because I don't need any people and it'll grow huge. And you've done it. Well, we're working on it. I think that the if there's a dream that's a little old school, it's that we're trying to help bring back and revitalize the independent web. The idea that it's not about just a few giant websites, Amazons, Facebooks of the world. 
uh, that become, through network effects, just overwhelmingly powerful. But it's about the James Altucher's and the, all the different independent websites. That was kind of the beauty of why the web was great in the beginning. It's, it's so true. And, you know, in a weird way, um, well, two, two comments on that. One is in the 90s, I actually started a web agency helping companies make websites. Now, Including Wu-Tang, right? Uh, inclu- yes, including uh, the, the Wu-Tang Clan, the movie The Matrix, Miramax.com, all of HBO shows. But you were, the development of companies like WordPress would have destroyed me because <laughs> I would charge $50,000 for a three-page website. Now, when I first made jamesaltucher.com, it took me like, a minute, <laughs> you know, you just go to WordPress and like, bam! You have like a website. You pick like a template, and then I posted a blog post a minute after that, and posted it to Twitter. And so <laughs> within three or four minutes, I had made a website, posted a post, and got traffic because of WordPress. So it's it's an amazingly powerful tool, which is why so many people are are using it. And I was I was surprised to see that when I started writing for the Wall Street Journal and all these other sites, they were using the same thing. I mean, so from small to big, they're all. It's an easy content management system to use. But the, the real point I want to make is <laughs> about the independent web. Nobody, I, I sort of feel you're, you're right that the, the big curators are like Amazon and Apple and maybe Facebook. And it's sort of moved over the curve. Like people can't really break out unless you're on, uh, featured somehow on one of these big websites. Like, do you think that it is still possible for people to make? Um, this is my name.com and had that be a, a destination site for people. Like I feel 10 years ago, yes, or eight years ago, yes, but now I think it's much harder. Uh, absolutely. And so there's still lots of examples of it. And the, I think what you want, it's not that these big sites are going to go anywhere. They're fantastic. I use all of them. <laughs> but that you want kind of a balance, much like there's three branches of government, which are supposed to balance each other out. Like just like you're supposed you, to. Supposed to, yeah. You, um, you need your own site that belongs to you. That's like like your own home on the internet, something that you truly own. Because on these other places, you're like a digital sharecropper. They provide space, they provide some distribution in exchange for basically owning all your stuff. You can't leave Facebook and take all your followers with you, or Twitter and take all your followers with you. But if I subscribe to a newsletter, for example, you can move that those email addresses from one service to another, or you can contact them directly, or it kind of leverages what the power of the independent web and what made the internet uh, grow so fast in the beginning. So I believe that we go through peaks and nadirs of uh, openness and closedness on the web. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, you remember it, that on billboards they had AOL keywords instead of website addresses. Are you calling me an old man? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you said, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. Um, by the way, there's still tons of agencies that build things with WordPress, charging fifty, a hundred millions of dollars sometimes. That's uh, incredible because you don't need to. <laughs> I mean, uh, my WordPress site, as anybody who goes to my site and fully kind of dives in, is pretty sophisticated. Like I manage lots of different email lists on it. You know, depending on you know, and I have lots of different you know types of letters mm-hmm. and uh, you know different functionality. Like there's the podcast section, there's the blog section, and anyway. So I, I'm definitely state of the art in terms of the plugins that I use. Cool, but uh, it's it's still fairly. I don't want to say it's trivial, but it's you don't need to spend a million dollars on your website anymore. People would pay us a million dollars for a website. <laughs> well, what's cool is that you don't have to spend a million dollars like building the wheels and the basic stuff, like the pages, the user management system, because WordPress has all that. So what you can do is take all the money you would have spent reinventing the wheel and put that towards doing something that makes it totally different. 
So uh, a cool site that started on WordPress a few years ago and is now pretty huge. Have you heard of Quartz, QZ.com? Yeah, yeah, I've written for them. Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so that's WordPress.com, VIP. And, uh, that's owned by the Atlantic Magazine. It is, Atlanta Media. And they, um, they have this awesome, the site almost works like an app. You can infinite scroll from article to article. And it, uh, it loads really fast because they issue normal advertising. It's a really cool experience. Um, and they were able to focus on that rather than like making a way for you to log in and type in a box and all the stuff that WordPress and many others have done for over a decade now. So, so this this idea, it's very interesting. You you brought it up in this way. Like, it seems like, well, first off, you're a, a, a young guy. You started Word. How old were you when you started WordPress? Like twenty three, nineteen, nineteen. When you first kind of, that's incredible, right? So, how old are you now? Thirty three. Just turned thirty three a few days ago. Do you feel like you know fourteen years is more than like half of your life, or around half your life? I can't even do the math. Man, uh, you've been working on this one thing. Do you get tired of it, or are you? What keeps you excited about it? Uh, that I, I could never have done anything from nineteen to thirty-three. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually what I hope I spend the rest of my life doing. It really is my life's work. Uh, it's changed completely. I mean, that's part of what. Um, is it a uh, Theseus's ship, or I forget the ship that gets rebuilt along the voyage, and you ask whether it's still the same ship, even though every single board has changed out. I think um, uh, Ulysses. I'm perhaps, guessing. Yeah, um, WordPress is like that. Like when WordPress started, there was no Facebook, there was no JavaScript used for applications, there was no iPhone, there was nothing. And the extent it's been able to actually accelerate its growth over the years has been that. Well, it's worth saying we're open source. I don't know if we said that before. So, well, I am going to get to that. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll get to that right now because huh? part of what I think makes you so consistent with the growth, not only the growth of this company, but your continued passion for it. Like you said, uh, this is what you want to do for the rest of your life, your your life's work. But also the way your company works, the way you organize your life. I think you live. You have this. Just from judging from your your writings and other interviews and speeches I've seen, you live this very open source life. Like the the ideas behind open source, the openness of it is almost this code that you that is infectious among your employees and the way you even treat other aspects of your life. Does that kind of ring true to you? It's definitely what brings us together, folks who work on WordPress and at Automatic. Is the ideals of open source. Well, yeah. So tell 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 me about that. Not from a code point of view, but mm-hmm. just from almost like a philosophical point of view. Because you 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 almost the the sort of ownership aspects of the web, which you just described, like I own my website, for instance, as opposed to my page on Facebook. That seems to permeate every aspect of your life. This kind of philosophy of like I need to 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 own, you know, be in touch with or have. Some kind of um, ownership's the wrong word. I don't know. You, you ownership's you actually a great word. All right, uh, because go with it. when something you know, think of musicians in the fifties or sixties who maybe sold a million records but didn't own their masters, so barely made any money from it, or died poor because they didn't what they made didn't really belong to them. Uh, there's always been folks who get in the middle and can sometimes capture some or all of the value. So open source is basically the idea of looking at. Uh, Code runs our lives now. You know, we're we're sort of more an accessory to our computers or smartphones often than vice versa. And uh, when that code, when you can't modify that code, when you can't see how that code works, when you can't own that code, uh, you don't have true agency. And so, open source. What do you mean by true agency? Just I want to really kind of uh, sure. Uh, 
understand everything. Because again, I view this uh, as a as a, a running, um, to use the word, code through your through your life. That 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 I I think very few people I've seen so thoroughly have one kind of set of values that kind of uh, help them determine their their decisions and how they run their companies and how they run uh, their relationships and whatever. So so what do you mean by agency? Agency goes back to the idea almost of the founding fathers, right? The idea that there is freedom. Freedom of purpose, freedom of expression, freedom of movement. Um, if you look at the Bill of Rights and things, it's essentially protecting the individual against what's naturally going to be more powerful, uh, the state. And the whole idea of like federal versus states' rights and all the sort of ba- things that were controversial at the time were essentially all about this interplay. Um, and I think it was the late 80s when computers started to be more and more powerful. There was this guy still around called Richard Stallman. And he, uh, it's funny, remember an office space where they get really mad at the printer? Yeah. Open source kind of started because Richard Stallman was mad at his printer. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, I was a big user of some of Richard Stallman's, uh, not his products, but the things with the GNU license, the, yeah. the, the free license, uh, GNU Chess and, oh. and and Emacs, of course. Oh, cool, yeah. And WordPress is under the GNU public license, the right. GPL. Um so yeah, he was mad at his printer because it was, wasn't working and he wanted to fix it, but the code was closed, so he couldn't fix it. Uh, long story short, GPL has four freedoms. Uh, the first is the freedom to use. It provides four freedoms to the user, like you and me. Uh, the freedom to use the software for any purpose, which means you can do whatever you want with it. You can make a site that is saying how much you love WordPress. You can say a site saying how much you hate Matt Mullenweg. You can sell it. You can search and replace it with James Press and sell it. You can do whatever. Right, so I can take all the WordPress software, create my own company called James Press, and other people could then, as long as I always make my changes available to the public, I could then say, hey, come to James Press, <laughs> get your templates, build your websites, and, totally. I'll, and, and, and buy my plugins, and I'll provide support, and so on. Yeah, and lots of people do that. That that's the beauty of it, though. The only yeah. restriction is that you, as a developer, as someone selling the software or redistributing the software, can't take any way, take, cannot take away any of the freedoms that you yourself were given. So the say, use it for any purpose to see how the code works, to modify the code, and then finally to redistribute those code. So those four things. It's very very simple. It's a beautiful hack. Um, essentially, creates like a bill of rights for software. And when this exists. You know, I use the word agency. You are in control of your digital destiny. Like, ultimately, like I could grow devil horns tomorrow, turn evil, like try to take WordPress away. I couldn't because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. You own it just as much as I do. So, so it's interesting because um, there, there's there's a very uh, profit oriented meaning of that, though, which is you would think, oh my God, why is he giving away all his software for free? How is he going to make any money? But the reality is. Then now with all the software for free, other people can more easily make plugins on top of it, which gives more encouragement to people to use your software. Which then uh, they'll buy your plugins that your company has made, and and so on. So it's actually good for business. <laughs> I would say almost every business gives something away for free. Like you walk into a bookstore, they don't charge you to walk into the bookstore. <laughs> um, That's a good point. You know, uh, Google, you can use it for free. Facebook, you sign up for free. Like. Every business, so people get really, because software used to be sold, and Bill Gates famously said like free software was like a plague on intellectual property and things like that. But um, that was just sort of a temporary point in the 
computer and computing ecosystem, much like the way that you used to get like a bundle of comics and obituaries and sports and weather and everything with someone like delivering dead trees to your doorstep. And that was a distribution mechanism and enabled all these business models. When you would get software on floppies and CD-ROMs and maybe downloaded from the internet, selling it was kind of the business model. Now in this age of abundance where we're all connected all the time, the software is not the most valuable thing. It's the services, it's the data, it's the distribution, it's the content. Or you can do add-ons. So, so what's another... Um, I, I want to get into how this concept of open open source infiltrates other areas of your life. Um, and again, this idea of openness and freedom and so on, which which you mentioned um, earlier, you know, jamesaltucher.com versus having all my stuff on an aggregator website, for instance. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, there, there's many to choose from, but let's say Huffington Post or Medium or whatever. Um, but But what are other companies, do you think, that have been successful in using this open source approach? Other than WordPress, and there, there are many, I'm sure, but WordPress, I think, uh, is number one. I wouldn't say we're number one at all. I would say that we're unique in that we give basically everything away, and that we run the company in a very open source fashion. So, so what does that mean? Uh, well, one again, we give away all the intellectual property, which many people give away some, but not as much as much of a percentage as we do. Two, uh, we're totally distributed. So much like open source projects are generally collections of volunteers from all over the world, we're a collection of full-time employees, but everyone works from home wherever they are. So there's people in over 52 countries now. So there's, a, there's enormous freedom with that. They, they make their own hours. They kind of just have to... They're, they're basically measured by their output as opposed to uh, how many... How many their, their input, how many hours they show up at work, and what, yeah. how many emails <laughs> they send, and, and, and so on. Just yeah, output you just only. nailed it. Yeah, which probably you're measured by your output as well. <laughs> we're all measured. At some, well, unless you work in Washington, D.C., we're all pretty much measured by our output. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are the big things. And some of it's just basically... But yeah, there's another thing too, is just that there's not much of a management hierarchy. Like if you go to Amazon... Uh, I don't. I don't want to pick on Amazon because they're actually an enormously great company. But like, you go to uh, Procter and Gamble. I'll pick on them because they're okay. <laughs> P&G. There's there's a huge hierarchy of managers. Like every basically every manager can't have more than five reports. And so if you have a hundred thousand employees, there's tons of middle management layers. This is actually a very common misconception about automatic, and that our hierarchy actually looks totally normal uh, because. If you study management, if you study organizations, it's actually not good. Five is too few direct reports. But when you get above like 10 or 12, you reach a threshold. Depends on the role and what kind of team it is. But uh, ideally, you should be having a one-to-one with everyone you work with at least once a week, uh, like an hour. At some point, if you have... One-to-one, but virtually or not in person? Yeah, it could be virtually, of course. Like mm-hmm. We have this amazing technology. Like You and I are in a room, but we could also Skype or use Slack or FaceTime or there's a million different ways to do it. Um, you know, if you have twenty direct reports that you need to have one to ones with every week, that's twenty hours every week. That's half your week. So there's some point where there's a diminishing marginal return, and you can't give as much attention and thought to enabling that person, right? Because that's what managers, good managers, do is they sort of get everything else out of your way so that you, whatever your role is, can flourish in it, and that you feel challenged, and that you're in a flow state, and that you're, you know, whatever. They're like a coach. There's no great athletes without coaches. There's no but, great musicians who didn't have a great teacher. Like does, so, a good manager is is that ideally. Does the hierarchy work like a tree? So, like yeah, 
trees work pretty well. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> that where we're flattish, and this is a failing on my part, is that we're um, I have too many direct reports, mm-hmm. and so I'm actually not good at the one to ones because I have I think twenty two now, which is down from like thirty something, but it's uh, still too many. But at every other part of the company, we try to keep it. I'd say no more than like twelve or fifteen, very, 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 very tops. And then when a team gets too big, we have uh, I always forget the word. It's not the word where cells split into two equal cells. Oh yeah, I know what you mean, but I don't know what it is. Something osis. The opposite of sex. Basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they split instead uh, of grow together. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, so uh, you know, the team just splits in two. So instead of a team of fourteen, there'll be two teams of seven that look kind of identical to the fourteen. And actually, automatic is completely fractal. So when you zoom in or out. It looks the smallest team looks just like what automatic did when we were five or ten people, hmm. and then when you zoom out, um, the different levels kind of look like the small thing, just arranged at larger quantities. Have you heard of this company? Um, I kind of forget the name now. They make tomatoes of all things. I think it's Modern Tomato, or huh. I don't know. They're based in California, and there really is no uh, hierarchy. There's no CEO, hmm. and everybody is hired to do their job, and they there's uh, and there's kind of an agreement with the colleagues they have to interact with what their responsibilities and pay it should be, mm-hmm. and just everyone does their thing and that's it. And huh. they kind of report to their colleagues, so, but uh, it's very uh, diffused, the the management responsibility. I've only heard of one example like that, exactly <laughs> like that, though. That's an extreme. Out of you know how many millions of businesses are there in the world? Right. So maybe, maybe that's the exception that proves the rule. We've definitely experimented with different things. One cool thing about, because the teams can be relatively autonomous or divisions, that a division could go off and try a completely different org structure because they're measured by their output. So whatever's happening inside the box isn't that important to me. So we had a team, I think it was about 40 or 50 people, that tried Holacracy. Which is a Where'd more holacracy? What's holacracy? Uh, holacracy it's is like that, that, I, my first instinct is that's how hell is organized. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's a third level of Dante's Satan Inferno. Yeah. <laughs> um, holacracy. I forget what the holo stands for, but um, it's a it's they call it like an operating system for companies. So much like you described, where instead of like a strict hierarchy, there's sort of different roles and responsibilities that can be assigned to different people. And there's ways to do meetings and resolve conflicts and all these sorts of things. Uh, popularized Zappos is probably the largest uh, example of holacracy. Zappos is now 100% holacracy. So wait, I still and don't understand like what's what makes that different from a regular hierarchy. So instead of like say uh, I'm, let's say instead of being like the GM of WordPress.com and that has like 30 things underneath it and like. People reporting and stuff like that. It would be totally flat, and everything that's need to be done for that website, like there's someone who could be in charge of copy, or someone who's in charge of what's on the homepage, or something like that. Though that's kind of enumerated out and moved between people who are mm. equal. And it, I know it's complicated, and I'm not the best. I'm not advocating for it, so I'm not going to do it justice. Did, uh, did it work within WordPress? Um, the other big company that did it was Medium for a while. It didn't work for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened? The like, how did you judge failure? The team decided to stop doing it. Mm. So okay. they themselves decided that, although it was a very appealing idea intellectually, that in practice, I think, and this is what I've heard in other places, like you can say there's no hierarchy, but then sometimes you need. It comes in somewhere, like when you're 
Maybe ask who do you ask for time off, or who do you tell that you're going to be off? Uh, what decides? You know, wherever there's a decision tree, how does that go? Um, even the word decision tree kind of implies a hierarchy and branches and roots. So, so, so it seems like then. But the have you noticed because of the philosophy of like letting people work at home? Basically, everybody works at home. You're, mm-hmm. How many people sit in the actual office of WordPress slash Automatic? Oh, uh, it's we call it a lounge. Actually, it's only like five or ten people there, and so everybody else kind of day. is working in their pajamas. <laughs> and do you find that's the, one of the secrets of the enormous product productivity of the company? Because again, you're like what the fifth most popular site in the universe in the known universe and you have one less than one percent of the employees of all the other big sites I think it's perhaps a symptom mm-hmm. so the things we do anything any one thing taken on its own might fail if put in a different context and I don't ever say that like every company should be run like this or anything I do believe that elements of what we do are more what companies will look like in the future and you know, the sort of idea I think it's Bruce Sterling the future is here it's just unevenly distributed mm-hmm. Um if you look at the secular trends of technology and communication and presence and everything, it seems like this idea that to make something, particularly to make something that lives online, that we all come together in a physical space, you know, for certain hours out of the day, it's a little archaic. Like it's kind of a factory model, and we're not building cars, <laughs> we're building, right. rolling the web, and um, but all of it fits together. Like, although I believe in hierarchy for organizational structure. Often that comes with, and why people sounds like including yourself have like almost like a visceral reaction against hierarchy. It's because often that implies so much else. So one thing we say, in fact, at the top we have an org chart, right? It's a page I actually look at a lot because I often decide like when we hire new people. I do the final chats for when we hire. So deciding what team they go on. Uh, the top of the page says that this does not imply anything except what it is. You know, It doesn't mean that good ideas can't come from everywhere or that communication shouldn't flow in a completely peer-to-peer fashion or anything else. Just because you're at the bottom of this doesn't mean you're any less important or that your job's any easier or harder than someone at the top. I think, I think so it's, that philosophy is very important and it's hard to be, uh, it's hard to keep it as you grow even bigger because you, Let's say in a very classic organization with a hundred thousand employees and a, and a very strict hierarchy, where it, where you can't really talk to people in other departments and, and so on without going through your boss and his boss and so on. You, if you create a dollar of value, what piece of that value do you actually keep for yourself? Well, your boss has to have keep some of it. His <laughs> boss, his boss, his boss, the board, the shareholders, and so on. Like so, so unless you're fully empowered to. Um, Create as much value as possible, so this mm-hmm. way you can um, keep more actual dollars. It's a, a stri- standard hierarchy is going to cost you money if you're at the bottom of it. Hmm. Well, that implies that managers make more than individual contributors, and that's not always true at all. And I would say that even at companies like Google or other places, that's becoming less and less true. I would say that management is completely orthogonal to value creation. It's just a different set of skills that some people like and some people don't. I think that's a, that's a key thing. Yeah, and that's why when someone becomes a manager at Automatic, uh, we we say it's not a promotion. They don't get a raise, and if they decide they don't want to do it, conversely, they don't make any less money than they would have otherwise. Hmm. That's really important because otherwise, you have people who stay in management even though they don't find joy from it because they feel like it is the progression of their career or how they're going to make more money. So again, this seems to me very much 
like part of your of your code that you operate by. So your own internal values, mm-hmm. which is about I need to own uh, the the work I do. This is, you know, this is how you kind of implement it in your company in a very specific way. So so you're not following along, uh, following along the the standard hierarchies. You know, this idea of not not viewing a move to management as a promotion is, I think, an innovative one. How do you see this in in other areas of your life, like uh, hmm. you know, do, do you have a home base, for instance, probably San Francisco, <laughs> right? But uh, my home base is Houston. Uh, okay, I have. I didn't know that. I, I was in San Francisco. Was <laughs> the office of WordPress in San Francisco. It is. I go there very rarely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have places. I moved to San Francisco uh, when I was twenty, and so I still have a place there. You dropped out of college, right? Uh huh. And uh, took were a job at CNET. Uh, they were. They've always been supportive, but they were definitely concerned uh, because. I think education was always really key to them. And I had gotten, that was a huge deal, but I had a full scholarship to the University of Houston where I was going. And so they were like, wait, you're dropping out. But then it was also, it was to San Francisco. And I was going to work for a public company and things like that. Um, I got an amazing salary, more than my dad made at the time. Uh, was he upset about that? <laughs> uh, he never said that. I think he's always really proud. But uh, he did leave his job shortly thereafter and ended up, I think, making more than double as a consultant because. Well, this is actually a story that uh, we were having a town hall and someone asked about this. I got pretty emotional. It made me so sad because my dad had the same, worked at the same company for like 26, 27 years. And the fact that he more than doubled his salary when he left shows that they were essentially taking advantage of him. Right. Um, and Again, it's this idea that when you have kind of these rigid hierarchies yeah. and everybody's making more and more and more, they're all stealing value from the work you you do. I'm not saying that some companies don't do that, mm-hmm. but I'm also saying that it's not required. And uh, so it's something we think about a lot is how do we keep compensation at the market, you know, so that, uh, and we work on that quite a bit because I never want anyone to be in the situation where my dad was, where he was essentially, he gave the company something so key, to, like the loyalty of decades. And, uh, and they didn't return that, um, that loyalty. So I think that the idea that people switch jobs or millennials switch jobs a lot now or whatever, it's um it's not that they don't have loyalty, it's that the companies aren't showing loyalty to them. And when someone joins automatic, we say we want them to be there for decades. So what do you do if you expect someone to be around for decades? Well, make sure the compensation is on point. We do things like sabbaticals every five years so people can rest and recharge. Uh we invest in training and education, books, and all that stuff. Like <laughs> the worst thing would be to have someone who stayed forever who wasn't growing, right? So, like you try to invest in all that and, and set up the systems that enable people to grow and thrive. Because again, it has to change. You can't do the exact same thing for fourteen years, or ten years, or even four years. Uh, it has to evolve and change. And that's another thing about automatic is like the different teams. Uh, if let's say there's a way of working that you gel more with, maybe you, you like daily standups. So every morning you like to talk to your team. Uh, there's a few teams in automatics that do that. Not every team. But when normally, if you came to a company and they didn't do that and you like that, you would have to leave the company to find someplace else. We have a structure where you can just switch teams within the company to the one that kind of works how you do. And uh, allowing that, because I do think that you know, when companies have kind of a top-down, this is exactly how everyone should do everything. Um, the people are different. People learn differently, they work differently, they communicate differently. Uh, and you have to have a, how do you fire allow people? for a diversity of engagement. Like where where's the line where someone's different enough that 
you're like, look, you just don't fit in with with our culture. Well, there. So then the question becomes, what's universal? Um, communication, I think, is one of those things that is is super key, right? Because uh, if I if you just imagine a bunch of nodes in a system, like if I send you a packet or a unit of work and you say this is going to be done on Monday, I have to be able to trust that's done on Monday. Otherwise, I have to keep your thing in my head as well as what you're doing, as well as what I'm doing. So, by the way, you know, I, so, so just to, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm a little bit of an interrupter. So I sure. apologize in advance. But you talk in a very code like language. Oh. Like if I send you a, a unit of work, <laughs> like, <laughs> If I give you a task, <laughs> that, that works as well. Sure, sure. Thank you for translating for me. That's uh, uh, I, I'll do it every now and then. Yeah, you, you can translate to English. Yeah. Uh, so you need that sort of accountability in the system. Um, if that breaks, I would say that's a good reason to maybe not be part of the system anymore. So things like accountability, communication, um, Working well with others, trust, integrity. Do you ever ethics. write to your employees about, like, kind of broadly to all the employees, like, here's how you can improve your communication within the company? Like, what are some ways? Everyone does that, actually. So, I mean, that's the thing. Why does all the insight have to come from the CEO or mm-hmm. from the presidents or whatever? Like, if someone has a good idea, they can publish it. And, in fact, they could put it in the Slack announcements channel and the whole company sees it or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. now that's locked down. Um, Happens less than I would like, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes, yeah, actually, a few times a month at least, there'll be like a really great essay that I'll try to highlight something that someone wrote. Like, what's the what's uh, an example? I need to learn. Uh, it's also internal. That I don't know if it's. I'd have to generalize, but let's say, for example, that a team figures out a way. Uh, oh, here's a good example. Actually, something that I learned recently. Um, there's a few folks who I work with. Who run meetings way better than I do, <laughs> and uh, one of them talked about she sort of published her sort of way to do things, and I was like, "Wow, that's so much better than what I do." I apologize almost for the way I've been running the meetings that we're in together because yours are much better. And so sometimes I'll see this when I like sit in on other teams' meetings or do hangouts with them on. Uh, we zoom a lot for video chats, so these sorts of things. You know, there's uh, the future of automatic is unevenly distributed. Right? There's some teams that I'm sure that are doing things that over time the rest of the company will adopt organically. Or very, very rarely, sometimes I, you know, come from high and say, we're all going to do this. But that's usually only for like foundational things. So for example, uh, switching from IRC to Slack. There's this thing called IRC. You probably remember it. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's not good, to be honest, but like as open source guys, it's like we were like hundred percent. On IRC and like a hardcore element of the uh, company didn't want to switch off, and so that was one thing where I was like, we can't have like eighty five percent of the company on one thing and fifteen percent on the other. So there's like an internal communication, yeah, way way of talking. So I was like, hey, let's everyone has to be on Slack, just one hundred percent. You can use your other thing too if you want to for your team or whatever, but we all have to at least be on this one thing. So uh, that was probably the last example I can think of where something was dictated from. On high, even one to ones was something that started organically on a few different teams. You know, someone reads a book, they read, you know, high output management or Peter Druckerberg or something. They start doing it, and then as people migrate in and out of those, those teams, or sometimes you just see a team firing on all cylinders, and you're like, "Hey, what's going on there? What are you doing? Teach me how I can do that." And so the learning spreads organically. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
again, we see um, how kind of this this philosophy of freedom and openness kind of has infiltrated the way you run your company and and the growth of it and and why you remain passionate about it because it allows for reinvention of of both yourself and your, and your role even within your own company has changed over the years. You had a CEO, now you're the CEO, mm-hmm. and and it's grown. You know, I think for for a company too, it changes somewhat drastically with each new level of revenues or employees like you have to have a different totally. style um but uh how do you and and it seems like it also infiltrates your life like you have an office in San Francisco would you live in Houston I know you travel to a lot of countries during the year like how many hours even though you're the CEO how many hours a week do you think you spend being you know actual dealing with management issues of the company ah it's hard for me to answer cuz it doesn't feel like work you know right um like in some sense, you're kind of working right now. <laughs> Talking about WordPress, <laughs> like advertising for for the company, but internally facing stuff. Uh, I spend a lot of time. You know, it's definitely as we've grown past the 500 person threshold, past some revenue thresholds, everything like that. Probably the last year was the busiest of my life, uh, in terms of the hours required. But it also was the how many countries conflict. were in last year? I think I went to 20. Two, I forget. I just did the blog post. So. Right. Uh, how many books did you read last year? <laughs> uh, do you remember? I don't know. Like, I think that was twenty-two. Actually, oh, that was twenty-two. But what I, what the interesting reason I ask is, I also thought it was very interesting that you kind of have this quantified self approach too, where you kind of like examine all of your features, you know, <laughs> and and see how it changes year over year. Like you, you, you write a blog post on your birthday, which, by the way, happy birthday from the other day. Thank you. You, you write a blog post each year, basically, this is what's changed from last year to this year. <laughs> and you're very specific about, I read this many books, this many graphic novels, <laughs> went to this many countries, spent this many hours, you know, blah, blah, blah. And do you view that at kind of this measurement as a way of kind of almost measuring also your personal freedom? So you make sure you're not too much like spending too many hours reading emails or mm. whatever? It, you cannot change what you don't measure. So it is true. And I don't, I'm not super religious about all this stuff, but like I have a, a software on my computer right now called, uh, I think it's called QServe or QBServe or something. And it just tracks how long you're in each window. I think I'd be afraid to use that. And uh, I'll go back to a code thing. In engineering, you have to profile before you optimize. So you have to profile the code, which means like the code runs and you see exactly how many milliseconds are being spent in every part of the code base uh, before you optimize. Because otherwise, you do what's called premature optimization, which is sometimes called the root of all evil, which is uh, you might spend a lot of time, hours and hours, rewriting a part of the code, which only runs for a second. So so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an analogy there, though, to business in general. People mm-hmm. should... Basically, build a product and get a customer and be profitable before they start optimizing their company or hiring for all all sorts of things that they might not need or building all sorts of features that people don't use. I one hundred percent agree. And in fact, we probably take that too far sometimes, where things inside Automatic might get kind of broken for a while before we fix it. I think that the same is true too in in writing. Get the first draft done, uh, and then you could yeah. kind of see what you want to rewrite and, and so on, what feels good for you and, and so on. So I think this yeah. I think this works in a lot of different areas of life. Is that your approach? Because you're pretty prodigy or prolific in your output. Yeah, yeah. I probably rewrite everything maybe ten to thirty times. Wow. But I think I, I first came sure... across did you write on TechCrunch before? Yeah, yeah. I used to write on TechCrunch yeah, all like, the time. How is this guy writing this stuff? This is ridiculous. Like because you were very open. So yeah. I really dug that. Yeah, thanks. And um but what I would do is I would not look back while I wrote the first draft, even mm. on a book, I don't look mm. backwards. I finish the first draft as quickly as possible, 
And then I then it's it could be thirty rewrites later. I'll actually be happy with how one word connects to another word. Wow. So in some sense, it, I used to be a programmer too. It reminds me of how I would program. I was a very messy coder, but fast. <laughs> and then I would clean up afterwards. It's a good approach to life in a lot of things. Yeah. So so I, again, like um, I think you do you do that like by examining like, well, I want to have. I mean, you you said you want to have more simplicity over the next year. So somehow you'll measure that. And how will you measure that? Or stillness is another thing you brought up. Yeah, and, and symmetry you brought up. I didn't even understand that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of inspired by uh, our mutual friend Kamal's book, uh, Rebirth. Uh, yeah, Kamal Ravikant was just on the podcast. Rebirth. Really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Great. Oh well. So your listeners know. I don't need to plug it. Um, yeah. I, I chose for this year stillness. Symmetry and yellow arrows as the kind of three things I'm thinking about. To be honest, like I was, you know, I traveled a lot last year. It was like 230, but years prior to that, I did 400,000 plus miles every year. So I was in a different city every other day, every third day. I think I kind of maxed out. Like I don't know how. But much I wouldn't more. even know how many miles. I wouldn't even be close to how, knowing how many miles I've traveled. So 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 you measure that each year. Yeah, well, I mean, I use software for everything, so you get measurements. Um, yeah, I was literally, uh, I think, one of those years, maybe 2014, I visited 125, 130 cities. So essentially, a city every third day. Mm-hmm. Um, average, oh, you can, another way to think about it is my average speed was like 10 <laughs> miles per hour, 24 hours a day for the whole year. Oh, so my like, gosh. You're like, okay, so if I'm sitting still, that you're like a planet. <laughs> Um, there was something like that. I forget the exact number, but I was like, you know, things. Also, life kind of caught up a little bit, um, where some family stuff happened. I wanted to be home and with my mom a lot last year, and I also just started to explore meditation more. I just actually finished a book this morning, Pico Iyer, The Art of Stillness. Yeah, beautiful book. Ah, yeah, and it's short too. You can read it in an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, I feel like that was uh, from a TED talk he gave. It was from some talk he gave. It's actually, it's, they called it a TED original. And I was a little skeptical because it's like, also watched a video on TED. I was like, hmm, but it was beautiful. So yeah. I, I recommend it without hesitation, even though it's like kind of co-branded with TED and says to watch the video afterwards and everything. And it cost 15 bucks for like a 30-page book. Yeah, but uh, so so you decided though you're going to slow down this traveling. Was it Was it, you know, like you said, you wanted to have more family time, you want to have more... Kind of reflection time. Yeah, I think that it was really just that from movement, I felt like I had sort of taken that to its extreme. And probably, just like I said earlier, probably a little past where it was good. Um, and the realms which I which I learned a lot from. Like when you travel, you it changes you. Um and you learn to sometimes live with less, sometimes even less than you want if your luggage gets lost or stolen or something. Uh, but it kind of like puts life into perspective where a lot of the things that we think we need, uh, you're kind of shown through example. You can't be told it. I could say, you don't need all the things you think you need. It doesn't matter. But sometimes you experience it and you're like, oh, that wasn't as bad. I'm still alive. I can still move. Like, okay, let's start again. I like and- that shown by example. Because uh, I was about to give, ask you to give me an example, but now I'm not going to. <laughs> you kind of have to experience it. And I certainly very often have to learn through making dumb mistakes, even though people have told me what I get to like a year later. Um, and now, you know, even though I'm still healthy, I'm still young, I can move, the stillness, like the idea of exploring within yourself, 
the idea of trying to turn off all the inputs, uh, trying to spend more time with longer works of art or of, yeah, art is a good word for it, whether it's music, movies, books. I mean, sometimes, and you know, I don't want to say like I'm a Zen master or something, sometimes I sit down with a book and it's so hard to just make it through a couple pages because my mind is racing, my phone is buzzing, uh, you know, the package is being delivered and the door is ringing, like, oh, so much stuff is happening. And so, you know, if you think of you know, the life of a flaneur or like what true luxury is, I feel like right now for me, it's not lots of stuff or moving between things. It's finding more pleasure and joy with whatever you have. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because obviously you've had the opportunity to um, indulge in luxury in the sense that I, I, I think in an earlier round, WordPress had an acquisition offer or Automatic had an, a, a, an acquisition offer for about $200 million. You rejected it. It would have obviously made you wealthy um, for generations. And why did you reject it? I don't think... I don't think as a young, well, I don't think even now I would reject an offer like that for, for anything. Like, why did you reject that? I kind of looked around and thought, well, if I had like $100 million, what would I want to do? Which is a good question. Like, what, it's like, uh, I think too often people are like the dog chasing the car. They don't think, what do I do if I catch the car? <laughs> you know? Uh, so what would I do? That's a good point. And I thought, well, I would kind of want to do exactly what I was doing then. You know, I was... Uh, Writing software every day. I was traveling the world and visiting WordPress users, going to WordCamps, uh, meeting people, evangelizing open source and the, everything. Working with a small group of only like seventeen or eighteen people at the time of uh, folks who are like true comrades, true brothers and sisters. Like uh, still, and I was like, this is exactly what I'd want to do. So, will I think I'll have more agency in this regard as part of a larger company or part of an acquisition? Probably not. So I would think that, but again, this seems like a, again such a great way. It all sort of stems from this initial set of values you have about your own personal freedom and kind of analyzing your own sense of well-being, regardless. You know, because because again, a lot of people I think equate self worth or or self happiness with net worth, and uh, you know, here you have this opportunity to really cash in on that. But you you get back to your initial set of values, which is that well-being, freedom, and so on are important, and that helps you make this major high-stakes decision. And well, you just have to think long term. Mm -hmm. So too often, at the time, part of the reason I was considering selling, which seems kind of silly in hindsight, was uh, having kind of like a HR issue with one of the folks in the company, and uh, this was really stressing me out. And so I thought, what, is, well, what does it mean, an HR issue? Just they weren't working out. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of conflict. Like they, we just weren't gelling. Mm -hmm. And uh, and again, this was incredibly stressful. You know, uh, you asked about firing. Firing is still one of the hardest things. You know, right. because fundamentally, we hire the person. Right? We hire them thinking they'd be around for decades. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like getting married. Like mm -hmm. you know, till death do us part at the altar. And then you're like, oh, this isn't going to work out. How do you unwind that? It's still very hard and very stressful. But that. I didn't know it was one of my basically my first time as a manager experiencing that, and I didn't realize that it would pass. <laughs> I didn't real I didn't know what the other side of that looked like, so I was kind of freaking out. I was like, "Oh no, should, maybe I just shouldn't do this and like pass this on to a different manager." Other things I've you know flirted with the idea like 
just starting from scratch. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> uh, but then if you kind of break it down, you know, you asked me why earlier. Why is like the best question in the world? If you keep asking yourself why, you can often find elements of what you're looking for, maybe near your current situation. So it's like, well, what would it be like to start something new? Why? Well, I like that sort of initial act of creation and seeing if you can do it again, right? Is a question many entrepreneurs have. Like, was I just lucky or am I good at something? You know, can it can it happen again? And of course, a great example is, well, many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, like, but a great example would be like Elon Musk sold Zip2 for 200 million, then we does PayPal, sells that, then of course does many other things. Entrepreneurs sometimes have this need to kind of re- rebirth, to use our friend Kamal's uh, phrase. <laughs> but then I was like, well, do I have to do that outside of automatic? Hmm. Or can we create a structure where automatic can do that? Um, a lot of people don't know of automatic. It is kind of the PNG, where they're like behind the scenes brand. Uh, but we have these different products and we can spin new things up and they can fail and that's okay. Or we can start things and some of them become really big over time. You know, like five or six years ago, we started something called Jetpack, which is now one of the top WordPress plugins and like actually uh, gets more traffic than all of WordPress.com combined. Really? Sites that run Jetpack. Mm-hmm. Um, we did an acquisition last year moving into e commerce, a system called WooCommerce. Mm-hmm. WooCommerce is kind of where WordPress was in like 2006, 2007. So it's in the very early stages. And just like, you know, at the time in the early days, there's this company called Six Apart that was like, so much bigger and better, and like, well, how will we ever, you know, overcome this? Um, WooCommerce is the underdog. Like, it has some great success. It's open source, but there's an amazing company called Shopify, which makes like an incredible product and incredible experience. Like, can open source get there? You know, and so, so it's fun. So you can kind of renew yourself uh, through these experiences, or, or look at what it was that attracted me to that idea, and uh, see how you can create it wherever you are. So it's almost like. You can say, you, let's say you felt to yourself, okay, I need to sell the company and start from scratch. But you could maybe list, you, you then kind of dive deeper and say, well, why do I, why am I feeling this urge? Well, there's A, there's one uh, HR situation that really might, might not be as high stakes as I thought it was. And B, uh, these feelings of reinvention that I want to have, uh, uh, could be done within. There's many ways they could be done. They, it doesn't have to be just me back in my garage in Houston. It could be actually within the context of the company. Mm-hmm. So you kind of sort of have to list and and sort of put in their plate, like really dive down and ask, what's really, what are the five things bothering me, and what are the other solutions, and then kind of navigate through those solutions to to, to make a decision. It's hard to zoom out though, mm-hmm. you know, because it is. I think that's what stillness can give you, because you stop all the inputs. Because I, I mean, and I do this all the time. Again, I am the most imperfect person listening uh, of all your listeners. Like, I doubt uh, that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, your mind can just race, and you can spend a whole day. I used the word busy earlier. I actually hate the word busy. You can spend a whole day just going from thing to thing and input to input, and feel like you accomplished a lot. But then, like you know, look at the piece of paper and like, oh, this thing that mattered didn't work on it one minute. And when you stop all inputs. You know, your mind keeps going, and what pops up is often really interesting. Or how do you know what matters? <sighs> I mean, that is probably life's biggest question, right? But, but do you do you measure that too? Though <laughs> maybe we can figure it out on this podcast. Yeah. We will. We're we're gonna get there. <laughs> well, how do you, how do you measure that? Like, how, do you sort of say, okay, these five things from here are, matter the most? They give you the most joy, or like, what do you what do you personally do? 
because obviously you're very busy, but you're also very much in tune with or trying to be in tune with doing the things that matter that have the most impact for you personally. I think it's good to keep notes. Mm-hmm. It's good to brainstorm and write things down for the moment, but also to go back to them. Like I don't do this systematically, but sometimes I'll just pull up the scans of an old notebook or something. I keep them in Evernote. Uh, whenever I finish a notebook, I just scan it all in and then throw it in a drawer. Just say like, like okay, everyone else. Yeah, what, what, what was important to me in 2011? Or what was the result when we had that brainstorm session? Like, what were the ideas we came up with? Oh, okay, cool. We did like these eight, but there's like this other ten that we still haven't done yet. An idea literally from like eight years ago. <laughs> That's still a fantastic idea. Can we loop back to that? And how okay. can we make it happen? That's very interesting because I actually always encourage people to write down lists of ideas, but then throw them out. Ah. Because but but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I always think the ones that will that I'll remember later, I'll remember them because they were the ones most that mattered the most. But yeah. maybe if you maybe you don't realize the day after this one mattered, but maybe eight years later you look back and say, you know what, that would have been a really combined with this other idea that I had six years later. Mm. These two connected might might matter a lot. Yeah, I, I think what you just described, thirty seven signals also recommends. They're like, don't keep a feature request list. Like. Uh, the important stuff will keep popping to the top. I think the only downside there is you can sometimes succumb to recency bias. Hmm. And so it is good to... Which is the idea that, I'm just going to translate, the idea that the, the thing I worked on yesterday is the most important thing I worked on ever. So you have to zoom out. So I think it's just in your life, and for me this happens kind of on accident, probably more than not, is just to take the step back. You know, that's why I do this post every year. Like part of doing the post is reading the prior ones, my birthday post. I think I started doing it when I was nineteen. And so reading back and like, okay, at twenty two what was important. Man, I was a much better writer at twenty six than I am now. <laughs> like what was I doing differently then? What was I, you know? Um and because there is a pendulum. Like certainly in my own life, I've never been able to maintain like the perfect balance all the time. I usually swing too far one way or another and like notice it. Sometimes your friends who call you out on BS or your family, my mom's always been good at this, be like, hey, you're doing something wrong. Okay, let me swing back a little bit. And as long as you can keep course correcting there and can be self-aware, I think probably most importantly, be open to changing yourself uh, because we often think we're right. Uh, we always think we're right. <laughs> like Nobody goes into something thinking, well, I'm wrong, but I'm going to do this anyway. But what if you did always assume you were wrong? What would you do differently? What if I always assumed I was wrong? Yeah. Uh, well, I actually do pretty much always assume I'm wrong. But uh, <laughs> our mutual friend uh, Tim Ferriss is a very uh, stoic sort of guy, and I kind of uh, subscribe a lot to those ideas, yeah. which is to kind of uh, you know negatively visualize the, the the worst case scenario and realize it's not so bad. You know, kind of like you were saying about your travels earlier mm-hmm. that oh, this worst case scenario could happen. I always thought it would be horrible to lose all my luggage and my passport or whatever. Turned out to be not so bad. I think that's one of the things inspiring about your writing because you talk about losing it all and like many times. <laughs> yes, you're very open about your failures in a way. I think like almost n- n- very few other writers I can think of are. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's. Uh, I don't have to visualize very far to uh, <laughs> think of the worst case scenario. But but so I want to I want to get back to what you said actually in the very beginning about. Kind of the difference between my own site, like you know, this is my name.com versus putting everything on an aggregated site. You know, where to, to one argument is, 
well, everybody shops at Amazon, so that's where I should sell things as opposed to selling things on my site. And there's a strong argument statistically for that too. People are much more likely to buy on a trusted site like Amazon than to buy off of my site. But I just give that as an example. There's also many aggregator sites for writing, like you mentioned TechCrunch. That's where the eyeballs are. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather post there often than my own site or, or some other sites like that. But do you think uh, that skewed things such that these have become our arbor, you know, the, the curators of taste, these big aggregation sites, as opposed to, um, you know, almost limiting. Even though we have more choices than ever, we've we've limited the discovery process because everything's gone to these aggregator sites. And and you think, you think, do you think things will swing back to being more open, or do you think someone could start a business yeah. on their own with their own site? I mean, yes, you can. There's tons of examples of it. Um, like what? The well, the, there's over a million stores on WooCommerce that run on their own domain with their own plugins and payment systems and everything like that. So, uh, Shopify is another example. There's hundreds of thousands of stores on Shopify, small businesses. I think the thing is that these things aren't. So where I differ <clears throat> from like a Richard Stallman is he's very uh, ideologically pure in that like he doesn't even use a cell phone because the Operating system is not fully open source, like the baseband firmware is not open source. Um, I I think you know there can be means to an end, and there's some point where you can say, okay, this I'm going to trade a little bit of freedom for convenience. I think that most people just trade way too much freedom for convenience. So, like like what's an example of trading too much freedom for convenience? I would say only having your writing on TechCrunch and Medium and other places, and not having your own site. Mm-hmm. For example, if in the context of like you or a writer. Like um, Tim did this in the early days too. Like he would do guest articles for different places. It's like uh, is the guy who said I rob banks because that's where the money is. Like write for other places because that's where the readers are. But you know, get your tagline in there, or say follow me on Twitter or whatever it is. Have some place that at the end of the day someone can follow the path and end up on something that belongs to you. Hmm. And uh, maybe that's a small percentage. I don't know how many subscribers you have versus how much traffic your TechCrunch articles got or something. It's probably a small percentage. But those people, you know, to Kevin Kelly's like a thousand true fans, like they're on your team. Well, and and just to summarize that, that that that's a great post. And and WordPress yeah. is that Kevin Kelly's post about a thousand true fans goes hand in hand, I think, with WordPress, which is just that his point was you just need a thousand people who really believe in a vision you're expressing and you'll be able to make a living, essentially. And and it's very strong. And it's funny that some of the people who pro- are proponents of this the most, like one of them is Tim Ferriss, who now has yeah. a million true fans. <laughs> yeah. But he got there by focusing on you know a thousand. And I think that's true in a lot. You, know, you said earlier, maybe that's a more universal business thing. Uh, you like finding that one customer or being profitable or whatever it is. Uh, it can be very, very effective. So I forgot. Where we started there, but just the the openness of like, do you think do you think oh, things yeah. could move back to being kind of that independent internet? You know that that initially started pre pre all the stores. So the challenge right now is mobile platforms. So mobile platforms right now are inherently closed. The app stores, especially Apple's, are gated. Um, what you can do on the platforms, we've traded off security a little bit for flexibility. Like on, um, like use a Mac. Yeah, yeah. On the Mac, you can do kind of whatever, right? You can make it so when you click an email address, whatever program you want opens up. On your iPhone, when you click an email address, it will always open up 
Apple Mail, even if you don't use Apple Mail at all. Mm. Maps are the same way, calendars, everything. They've made all these defaults not switchable in a way that I think is actually kind of user hostile. Um, so, But this also limits the scope of opportunities that platforms have to be built on it. Final thing is that because of some of the way where we are right now on the curve of Moore's Law, so what sort of computation and storage allows, is that there are network effects to centralization. So meaning that it's Facebook can build better services because that's where all the people are. And so they get more data. And they use that data to improve the algorithms and the content they provide you in a way that makes it more addictive to come back. Or even if you decide not to come back, they send this amazing email, which is like uh, basically saying, like, your sister posted a photo. Don't you love her? <laughs> they don't say literally that, but yeah. that's the gist of the email. Do you want to see the photo? And like, you can't not click that. Or they make it easy for someone to tag you, right? If right. you get tagged, you want to see what it is. They don't put that in the email. They make you click through and go back to the website. And then once you're there, it's like the you know the checkout aisle where there's all like the the magazines and the candy and everything that kind of preys on our our weaker demons. It's almost like we've we've outsourced our decision making to all of these kind of different institutions that know how to exactly trigger a decision. Like you're going to have to click if you see that your your boss just tagged you in a post. You have to <laughs> click on that because you can't see what he did. So, but, and I think some of this, there are some what you might call dark patterns, like that many sites, including Facebook, are doing to draw you back in. You know, searching for that user growth, searching for the monthly active users. Um, but you have equivalents of that as well. Like every company on the internet does that. But I feel like, you know, the societal antibodies to this constant pulling and fight for our attention are starting to develop. Uh, people are starting to do digital Sabbaths where they unplug. Um, people are deleting Facebook. You know, it's almost impossible to, but maybe they're removing it from their phone and only looking at it on their desktop. Like people are looking at how these things impact their happiness or their quality of life or their connection with their kids or family or loved ones, and starting to opt out a little bit. Now, some of the smartest minds of our generation are fighting to get you to opt back in. So it's not the easiest thing. But you know, it's but interesting. I'm like, excited. Like maybe we went too far in one direction, and now it's not that not that social media is bad. I think people kind of are black and white on this issue. Mm-hmm. I actually think, in general, social media is a, a good thing for all the different age groups. Like it's more social, allows you to <laughs> extend your your group uh, outside your normal block in your neighborhood. So there's lots of positive. You can learn a lot more, but there's a negative aspect too. There's this addictive kind of aspect. So a Sabbath is sort of a good idea for for stillness. Yeah, it's something Pico Ayer talked about in his book, so that's why it's the recency bias is on my mind. Right. But fundamentally, we have to figure out different business models. I what, mean, what do you mean? Well, uh, the reason that Google and Facebook and yeah, I think honestly, some of the most impressive companies of a generation work the way they do. So, at the end of the day, they're selling advertising. They are trying to create desire in you. Uh, is it? Naval that has the great quote where desire is a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get the thing that you want. Oh, that is a great quote. Um, Kamal's brother. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, you know, the, that's what the whole thing is. And it's predicated on this business model, which I think also is going to be very interesting over our lifetimes, over the next 50 years, that you know, for the, basically all of our, much of our philosophy, all of our economic theories, everything was in a world where population was growing. And it looks like we're going to, based on sort of 
modernization, increasing education levels, and access to birth control and everything, like population will peak 2040s, 2050s, and will start secularly declining across the world. None of our economic systems are set up for that. I can't <laughs> By the wait. Way. I'm sick of all these people. <laughs> there is a, there's an altar of growth, which I subscribe to, and I, I'm a proponent of in many, many ways, because I do feel like we need to grow. But the business model has to be aligned. So one thing, one way we're different, and I think Apple is actually a good example of a company which is also aligned in this way, is that we get paid by our users. We're not selling our users to someone else, advertisers. We're not selling access to them. So that means we're aligned with our sort of our customers and the people who use our software every day. Um, you know, Facebook's primary customer is advertisers. It's not right. the people who use it. It's not the Instagram users. It's not the people posting photos. It's not the celebrities or anything. Those are just means to an end. Let's see. If it's interesting if you look at like let's say quote unquote old media like broadcast TV versus these subscription original programming services, starting with HBO, but now Netflix, Amazon, mm-hmm. Hulu, and so on. Uh, they're subscription based, and the quality of the programming is is much better. Like people would, it's it's subjective, but they win mm-hmm. all the awards now. <laughs> I think that you can you can think a lot longer term in a subscription business model. A subscription is actually. If we zoom out a little, like it's such a beautiful thing for someone to do to your business. They're essentially saying, like, not just a one-time thing, but I am subscribing. I'm, I'm like, going to give you some of my hard-earned money every month, every year, every whatever it is, and uh, and they're kind of signing up with you. Well, and that that gives you flexibility as a business to think longer term because you're not having to like re-seduce that person every time they walk in the store. Well, and it's interesting because let's say I would say or walk down the street is probably a better example. So, some large percentage of what your customers, quote unquote, customers have is free. They get for, for free from you. Mm-hmm. Like the WordPress template is free, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then that's sort of this way you build a relationship with the customer, and then kind of piggyback all these other ideas. Like, hey, you might need this, and it only costs like five bucks a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting model, and I, I do think that that is the model of. The 21st century, to some extent, in, yeah. in terms of like in whether it's information marketing or commerce or whatever, uh, I think that that's a very powerful model. And I think you all these old media companies, like let's say newspapers, as you mentioned, they're all dying as a result. I think it's an interesting approach if you're starting a new business. So all we did, like I said, all businesses give away something for free. So we just moved that line way to the right, mm-hmm. and we ruthlessly commoditized what our competitors were making all their money off. And then we charged for things that they didn't even think about charging for. Hmm. And then we, more recently, starting around 2010, switched to Beats and subscriptions. So rather than a la carte, one-time things you're buying, people are actually signing up. And then that gave us the sort of revenue and funding in order to build bigger, longer-term things. You know, there's projects at Automatic that sometimes take years before they launch. Not because we're slow or not because we're not working hard, but because there's just something big out there, you know? And we're tackling a big problem, or you know, uh, in 2014, oh no, 2014, 2015, no, 2014, we released something called Calypso, which was essentially like a ground-up rewrite of the administration interface for WordPress in JavaScript instead of being in PHP. Uh, so we essentially did like 12 years of work in about 18 months, mm. and learned a new language at the time because basically all of the developers at Automatic were primarily PHP developers, not JavaScript developers. So that was that was really hard. I was actually one of my proudest moments of everyone I work with because we both learned something new uh, and launched it. And launching is hard. 
Uh, but you have to constantly be able to do that. And if we didn't have, if we had investors that were looking at us quarter to quarter, probably somewhere in the middle of that, uh, we would have changed horses midstream. You know, <laughs> they would have said, "Oh wait, you're a year into this." And by the way, some of your metrics are starting to slow down or flatten out because you're putting every single thing, not into optimization, but into this new thing. And by the way, it's really risky because you might launch it and nothing happens. Well, it's and I've heard you mention this before. It seems like you also work very hard to keep expectations super honest with investors, and I imagine with other people in your life. Like, so I think that's a key, a key thing. People people aren't forcing you to monetize something you don't want to monetize because you've already let them know you're not going to monetize something. Especially in business, there's basically no reason not to be super transparent and honest. Right? <laughs> you can. I mean, if you just imagined every scenario. Uh, even though it might be a difficult conversation or painful, in the long term, having more symmetry of information there, so having where we're both on the same page, we know what to expect, even if it's not what we want, is is always going to be better. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt Mullenweg, the the founder of WordPress and Automatic, and I just read last year or 2015, 660 million blog posts were posted or articles were posted on a WordPress platform or yeah. about six a second. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive. I guess last question is, how did it feel once you realized like, oh my God, not only will this take off, but this is going to be something that changes the, the structure of how people use the entire, the worldwide internet. Huh. <laughs> I mean, it feels good, uh, but it also, I would say, well, part of the thing that keeps me going is not moving the goalposts, but also, like I said, this is my life's work. So I don't think about the twenty-seven percent of the internet that does use it. I think about the you know sixty-three that doesn't. <laughs> you're going to conquer you, the world. Oh, I I want the world to run on open source software, and I can I don't. I used to think that like if you just told everyone how much better it was, they would be like, oh yeah, of course. Turns out not so much. <laughs> you have to make it better. You have to make products that are better, and then people adopt it. And if they get open source, a better moral thing along the way, much much better. But, well, again, Matt Mullenweg. WordPress. You could read about him also in Three Billion Under Thirty by Jared Kleinert. Uh, I highly recommend the book. Uh, Jared, who's actually sitting outside in the other room, I hope you write Five Billion Under Fifty. <laughs> two years left for you to write that book, so I could be a chapter in the book. But we'll we'll see if you do that within the next two years. But Matt, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. I just want to let you know, not only do I have new episodes for you every Tuesday, but I'm considering adding episodes to each week. But I really want to know if you like the show. And there's an easy way for you to tell me. If you subscribe, you'll never miss a single show. And it's really easy to do this and it helps me a lot. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Then let me know on Twitter. My handle is at JayAltucher. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.